A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. You're listening to Justice, a podcast exploring all areas of the justice system. With me, prison philanthropist and founder of One Small Thing, Edwina Grosvenor. This week I speak to Sarah Dangar, Chief Executive of Ahimsa. Ahimsa is a Plymouth-based charity that challenges and supports perpetrators of abuse to cease their violent and abusive behaviour. In this episode, Sarah shares more about Ahimsa's programme for male perpetrators and why she believes this work is vital if we want to protect more families from the devastating effects of domestic abuse. Hi, my name is Sarah Dangar. I'm the Chief Exec at AHIMSA. Can you tell me what AHIMSA actually is? Yeah, so we're um, um, AHIMSA is a small, really well-established charity. We're um, specialists, we're based in Plymouth, and we challenge and support those individuals who have or are perpetrating domestic abuse to engage in a, a pretty long-term intervention to address their behaviour um, with the aim of long-term meaningful behaviour change for them and for their families. Okay, and when you say sort of long-term, how long might you expect someone to be on your course? So our programme is long, so 30 weeks up. So there are a number of weeks where they'll be assessed for suitability and we're really looking at whether they are in the right place to engage with our programme. Um, and are committed to their own behaviour change and also recognise and are responsible for some of their behaviours. They need to be in that right space to engage and then they enter into some one-to-one intensive work and then they will move into our group programme, which will be anywhere between about 26 to to 30 plus weeks. Okay, and I presume it's men, women, non-binary. So can you say a little bit more about the sort of gender split on the sort of perpetrator programmes? And then also how do people refer themselves either to you or maybe they are in a prison and maybe you work in there? Primarily the cohort is men. But in part, that's driven by the fact that our group programme, so our sort of main, um, I suppose, flagship programme, which you might call a domestic abuse perpetrator programme, a sort of DAP as they're more widely known, although I sort of have some issues around the language there. Um, I'm not sure it's always helpful. But that programme is for men. um, And that's because it's it's a space for men. And we know that domestic abuse is, of course, gendered. What we're seeing, um, though, as sort of a a need is um, women who are are perpetrating domestic abuse coming to us seeking support from around the country because there are a dearth of programmes for them. So we're seeing more of those women and we're supporting us and where we can with one-to-one, often remote support because we just don't have the capacity or the funding to have a great programme in place for those women. 
We accept referrals for our group prog- programme from a range of, of sources, so it might be from statutory bodies like social services. Um, however, that might also be individuals making the difficult decision to want to engage in a programme like this. Do you find that the people who might refer themselves go the course and stay compared to people who maybe are sort of encouraged by statutory bodies? I think where people are more forced to be there, it can be difficult to engage in the beginning. We are robust on our suitability assessments, really ensuring that working with individuals who are accepting a level of responsibility for their behaviour. So there has to be that acknowledgement of causing harm and wanting to change. So we might have a referral um, from social services where we're not seeing that in that assessment or in those one-to-ones, and that's not someone that we can then progress through the programme. So I think it's more about motivations for individuals. Um, So sometimes that shock of being forced can be helpful to... To, to make men think about the impact on their children, potentially not seeing their children, what that might mean in the longer term, and to recognise some of their own behaviour. Of course, it's not always the case, but we do see quite a big drop off between people that are referred in and then people that go on to do the programme because of how robust we are around suitability and assessment there. Okay. And do most people stay on the course the whole way through? Do you have a sort of rough percentage of people who would usually drop out or...? There can be quite a big drop off. What we do see is people coming in and out, um, often where things can be quite chaotic around court systems, maybe offending or drug and alcohol misuse. We can see people coming in and out of the programme. So if their drug and alcohol usage increases, you know, we we can't support them within the programme whilst that's sort of ongoing. So if someone came and turned up, for their session and they were drunk or obviously under the influence of something, I presume, what would you say, you can't do this today? Yeah, we we couldn't have them in participating in the group. And one of the things we do in the group at check-in is we check in on their abusive behaviour that week. So they're, you know, they are asked to talk about how they've been that week. Um, And they were also asked about their drug and alcohol use. Um, And we would say a sort of moderate use but ideally, we would want to, you know, to be really low, low usage. And I think that's where you can start to see people being able to reflect on their own behaviour and behaviour change. Yeah. And how often do you get men sort of saying, oh, sadly, I've been very violent this week to, towards my partner and I have been taking a lot of drugs, you know, just playing devil's advocate? Yeah, you do see you do see a range in group, although I think once they get to the group stage, having done that intensive one to one work, they're behaviour is beginning to shift. So I think sometimes we see things like, um, I threw a plate in her direction, but not at her. Right. Which they might see as a really important distinction. And what I was really interested in when I watched that group session is one of the other men, because it's a rolling programme. So men are at different stages of you know the programme. One other man in the group turned around and said to this individual, how do you think that made her feel? It's still scary. That's still intimidating behaviour. That is abusive. So I think we we see those kinds of levels. We also see people maybe say, I put her down this week. So recognising the nuance of abuse and not just seeing physical abuse. In a session I was watching last week, 
an individual hadn't been abusive towards his partner, but he had been violent in an incident in the pub. Um, so he was talking about that and about how his, or he'd he'd gone to be violent and not been violent. And he was talking about how that was a real shift in his mindset and that before he would have picked up a stool and hit someone over the head with it. He put the stool down and walked away. Now, he went outside and kicked over a wheelie bin, which he'd felt he'd sort of failed because he'd reacted, but a massive shift from where he was. So I think one of the benefits of the programme is not just around that abusive behaviour with your partner, but in your life more generally. Yeah. Because of that better ability to regulate that emotion and work through. You know, our programme uses a, a mindfulness approach and real inquiry around principles of responsibility, emotional vulnerability, love, empathy, creativity. So we talk a lot about people being able to take a step back, ground, regulate, and then be able to re-enter. So, they, you know, that gets spoken about a lot in the group. And then when they finish, do they get a certificate? And do you, after, uh, do you offer sort of aftercare, which I'm sure can be difficult, but... Yeah, that's one of our, one of our gaps in provision, I suppose, is that aftercare. Our programme is quite fluid, so we're not going to cut someone off when they've completed X number of weeks. We don't work on modules. We have key themes that we work with, but we don't have... Today, we're working on this theme and we only talk about this theme. So people might stay a little longer if they need to stay a little longer. Equally, they might say, I need to come to group. I'm struggling. I need to come to group when they've completed, so to speak. But one of the things that we'd really like to do is a follow on group. So even if that's some kind of drop in, a monthly drop in where individuals can come back when they need to, when they need that space, when they need that bit of support, when they're challenged by behaviour. So that's something we'd really, really like to offer because we do recognise that if you've had this support for 30 weeks and it's gone and something comes into your life that is challenging, then you can fall back into your abusive behaviours for those people around you. Yeah, and sort of like all of us, if we're trying to change behavioural patterns, whether it's drink less, exercise more, all the usual things that we're all trying to do the whole time, you know, you need those top-ups, don't you? You need moments where you're plugging back in and be like, right, reset, Yeah, I had a bit of a wobble, I need to get back to the gym. And there's people around you that is a, a safe space to be very honest. And I think it's one of the things whenever I watch group sessions is actually there is a huge amount of honesty in the room and that's that's the work of the facilitators in creating that you know that space and group members talk a lot about each other's openness and how that helps them to be open so they say things like you know when people are open and honest it allows me to be open and honest and they'll talk about being moved by each other's honesty um and that inspiring them to share their own stuff so I think sometimes people do need to come back to that and they can't do that with social service professionals or their partners or family members even. And I'm sure sort of, I mean, you know lots about this, but, you know, that's the interesting thing, isn't it, about working solely with women or solely with men. You see the differences, don't you, of showing vulnerability and generally speaking, women will open up much quicker, they'll talk more freely, yeah. um, whereas men, there's a lot of banter, isn't there, and humour that can mask vulnerability and the feeling of shame that, you know, people say men feel more than the women. And do you find that? Is there quite a bit of uh, some nervous laughter and a kind of like, oh, well, I'm not going to open up. But as you say, if I see him opening up, well, then maybe I can show my vulnerabilities. 
I think almost rather than banter, I see a, a silence sometimes, you know, in the group where people don't want to start uh, or a bit wary of speaking. And then as soon as one starts, it's almost like that permission for others. But we see, you know, we work around shame and guilt a lot and, and what that, those feelings of shame do to you um, and how they serve you or don't. And that's a really important part of our programme. And I think one of the things I always talk to people about when I talk about our work um, is around, you know, trauma. People talk a lot about being trauma-informed, but our practice has to be trauma-informed because the the men that we're seeing, uh, same men because that's primarily who we're working with in terms of perpetrating abuse. And, you know, we know, again, that it's gendered, but actually there has been significant trauma. Um, we see it particularly on our um, the high-risk, high-harm programme that we also deliver you know, there has been exceptionally traumatic events for those individuals. That trauma is not an excuse for perpetrating abuse. But actually, when we start working with that trauma, we can start to get to the point where we can engage in the behaviour change. Um, you know, and a lot of that is around that either over-controlled emotion or that emotional regulation and that vulnerability. And being able to open those things up enables people to engage. Absolutely. I remember being in a male prison in America, um, a supermax prison, Pelican Bay, and we were talking to some of the men there who were doing the exploring trauma intervention, which is trauma-informed, gender-specific. And it was so interesting because one of them said, look, I'm never coming out of prison. I'm going to die here. But for the first time ever, someone has said to me, well, of course you're angry. Maybe you have reason to be angry considering what's happened to you you of course feel angry and you should feel angry what's not okay is to then be violent to other people so how do we come in at that point and actually not dismiss their anger if they've been victims of childhood sexual abuse for example like lots of them have well my god you'll feel angry and quite rightly and there's nothing wrong with that anger until you start harming other people. I remember it was like a massive light bulb moment for him. No one had ever really said, of course you should feel angry. That's okay. Yeah. And you know, we talk about compassion and not collusion. We're compassionate in our work with, um, with everyone we work with. And I think it's, it's easy to be judgmental when you're working with perpetrators of abuse. But actually we need to show compassion. We need to, um, you know, acknowledge their trauma and um but it's really important we don't collude so we need to challenge and that can be a really fine balance you know when you're challenging behavior um but actually we have to be compassionate because if we don't start with that compassion we're not modeling what we want to see and you know what what they should be sort of working towards so I think it's so important to acknowledge it and I think there's this I know when I moved into this role, people talked about you're moving to the dark side, working with perpetrators. And one my um my behaviour change facilitator on the high risk high harm program just puts it perfectly when she says it's the most victim focused work she's ever done. Absolutely. Um, because ultimately we're working to prevent, to to sort of you know, support the behaviour change of one individual can actually support many women from being victimized totally. by them and children. 
I was so keen to do this podcast with you because I've always got my ear to the ground. I'm like, what are the really good perpetrator programs out there? Because, and, and you don't hear about them that much. You know, I'm fairly plugged into the justice system and have been for like 22 years. And so my ears always prick up when I hear about them. And other than Circles, which is about um, sexual violence predominantly, and I did a podcast with the chief executive of Circles, um, and you, I know there's others out there, but can you maybe shed a bit more light on what the problem is and do we have a huge gap in provision? I mean, there are a number of programs around the country. We're a respect accredited organisation, and that's because we, um, we, you know, we also have so we meet a set of standards essentially, and we also have an integrated partner service where we offer therapeutic support to ex or current partners. Um, and there are a number of respect accredited organisations around the country. Um, there's not a huge number, in all honesty. You know, it can feel a lonely, a lonely old place to do this work. I mean, there are a number of other organisations dotted around some of them with quite short programs um, and, and others like us who have these sort of longer term interventions. But I think for so long, um, people have seen working with perpetrators or those who perpetrate abuse as being dark, the dark side. And, you know, that working you're working with angels when you're working with um, victims and, you know, women and children, essentially. And I come from that background of working, um, you know, from the front line to sort of where I am now with with um, women who've been victims of domestic abuse and sexual violence. But again, it's really turning on its head, isn't it? And saying, actually, you know, I've worked with a lot of women and in my previous role, you know, with families bereaved by fatal domestic abuse. And when do we, when do we shift our attention and say, we need to, I think there's this, this sort of hashtag pivot to the perpetrator. When do we start thinking about that prevention angle? And I think the government sort of has committed to to a strategy around perpetrators of abuse um, and local areas are now starting to think about that when they're thinking about their violence against women and girls strategies. Um, but I'm not sure how many local areas are investing in the programmes in their areas. And I'm really lucky in Plymouth that our commissioners really understand that working with perpetrators is about prevention and it's about, you know, preventing domestic abuse, preventing violence against women and girls. Um, but I, I know certainly when I talk to colleagues around the country that they're not all as well as supported locally as we are. Which so, is really strange, isn't it? Because again, it sort of puts the blame, if you like, back on the women. It's like, you have to move house. You need to move your children from their school. You need to get over the violence and abuse that's been perpetrated towards you. And then you're like, hold on a minute. <laughs> what about the people who've done it? <laughs> yeah, And services are overwhelmed. You know, services are overwhelmed um, because there are so many women who need support. Um, and, and ultimately, I think there was um, a drive report out last year, sort of a, a real call to arms around a perpetrator strategy. And I think they said that for every um, for every high or medium risk perpetrator, there were six victims attached. So, you know, if we can we can change behaviour in one individual that has a real ripple effect on women and children. Um, and I think that's the shift that we need to make. I don't think our communities are necessarily quite ready or quite there. Um, but I think, yeah, we really need to see that actually it is victim and children focused, um, but we're going, to, we're going to the source. Well, exactly. And people sometimes not understanding that um, a perpetrator can often and is often a victim first. So, you know, that language of 
that binary victim yeah. perpetrator like they're always separate things um yeah. or separate people they're not are they um no. and it's much easier I think to empathize with people when you see them as a victim first and again it's not to uh you know condone any type of bad behavior because that's not what any of us are doing no. um how do you find I think I know the answer to this question but I'm going to ask you anyway um fundraising in this world must be pretty difficult I don't imagine you would have a sort of gala ball. Um, you stand up and make your speech and say, well, I'm dealing with men who perpetrate really awful violence. Um, it doesn't sort of go down well compared to the donkey sanctuary, for example. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yeah, it's, um, it is really difficult. You know, I recently applied to sort of one of these community-based schemes where, you know, the community might pick you as a cause, you know, but you have to get through that first round. And it's a you know there's no getting around it it's a hard sell we're not puppies and kittens you know it's it's quite hardcore intensive behavior change work and not always successful because of the nature of the work and I think one of the other difficulties with funders is they want these great big numbers and actually without resource I'm really limited on numbers in in our group work for instance our group is about eight men for a long program and yes it's rolling but we only have that capacity our high-risk, high-harm programme, which is actually funded by the Police and Crime Commissioner at the moment, Devon and Cornwall Police and Crime Commissioner, um, you know, that's 15 max. So we are limited in the work that we can do with the funding that we currently have available. Um, and I think um, people look at those figures and it doesn't seem like many people. But ultimately, that's the cohort. You know, you have to... We have to start and without the funding, you can't increase the numbers. And I think it, we're never going to have, our programme is long and intense and difficult. We're never going to have 200 men a year coming through our programme because it wouldn't work. You know, so it is a specialist intervention and specialist interventions that are long term aren't cheap and they shouldn't be cheap because we, we shouldn't be saying, oh, we can do it in four weeks. We can do it in six weeks. We yeah. absolutely can't. It has to be done properly. It has Otherwise, to be done properly. it's really a waste of money. <laughs> and it's unsafe. You know, yeah. ultimately it's really risky. And, you know, risk has to be the cent at the centre of everything we do because these individuals are perpetrating abuse and some of them are uh, high risk. So we need to make sure that it's a safe service and a safe service isn't a cheap service. And that's the reality. We're very lucky with some great funders. So we do have Lloyds and Henry Smith and we've just finished our funding with Esme Fairburn. Um, we've just really, really pleased to have successfully got some money from Charles Hayward last week. Um, so... You know, we, we have got really good support, but we need we need more. And I find that particularly in the current environment, um, you know, times are really hard for small charities. Um, I'm already panicking about our fuel costs for our building or our office space um, so that we can continue to run the group. Um, it, it You know, the funding landscape is difficult. And I often find that more of my time is spent trying to generate money. Yeah. As you say, off the back of COVID and people pivoting their giving to, you know, completely understandably to COVID, Ukraine, and now the cost of living. Yeah. I imagine small charities will be needing more for their core costs, as you say, the buildings, yeah. the staff. Core costs are rocketing. And I think that doesn't just, that impacts our, the, the men that we're supporting as well. You know, we're seeing more and more men who can't afford to get to us be it the bus, the fuel, or to take the time, you know, our groups in the evening, but people work shifts, so to take the time from work or to be able to get that time from work. Um, and also, you know, my staff team, 
you know, their own personal costs are rising. And as a small organisation, you can't always say we can make this this cost of living payment to you. You know, I'm sitting down and working through the numbers on all of those things to, to support them. But they're a really specialist team. I can't lose them. You know, the, the workforce available for this kind of work is a very small specialist expert pool. Yeah. So I think you're battling both how your um, clients are going to manage, just the core costs going through the roof, and also supporting your staff team who are feeling it like everybody else, you know, at varying degrees. So it it feels quite a daunting year ahead for all of us. If there's any funders listening, we'll make sure um, that all your details are um, in the footnotes of, of the podcast. So I would urge anyone listening who might be interested to, to get in touch, obviously. Um, I was interested, you were talking about the specialist uh, members of staff who obviously do this type of work and your own backgrounds and and how did you end up sort of working in this particular field which is quite niche it is quite niche yeah I tend to like niche niche bits and bobs so I started working around domestic abuse um over a decade ago and I, I actually fell into it and just knew that that was what I you know I, I never had like what you want to be when you grow up I, I never thought I never had any idea um and I fell into work around domestic abuse and sexual violence and just loved it loved working um in that area um and um then I um I took some time out of the sector because in all honesty I felt really burnt out and um and missed it desperately and then started um to work with an organization called After Advocacy After Fatal Domestic Abuse working um around families bereaved by domestic homicide and domestic abuse related suicide part of that work is assessing domestic homicide reviews and I still do some of that um some of that work um in my in my spare time and um I think there was some really something about that work with families who, you know, when the abuse had got to the ultimate, you know, be it that 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 homicide or that suicide that had that had ultimately been a result of the the abuse that um, primarily women um, had suffered. So, um, I must have read over three hundred domestic homicide reviews. I can't think how many families. I spoke to how many of their stories and their loved ones' stories I heard. And I think, um, and I absolutely loved that job. I loved it. Um, and I'm still in touch with lots of the families and I do a lot of work with AFTA and with their chief exec, Frank Mullane. But I think what I recognised was, one, it was quite difficult just working around the end, you know, in its, you know, for so long and with the sort of fatality of it. And I really just recognised that we have to go to the source. We have to think about, you know, those perpetrating the abuse and, yeah, and, and those and going causing harm. and stopping it ever getting to a to suicide or a murder. Yeah, and I still, like I said, I do a lot of work. So um, I am a, a part-time, this role with the HIMSA is part-time, again, because that's what we have the resource for. So I do do this work alongside, um, primarily now around domestic abuse, suicide, which is my real area of interest. And um, uh, yeah, and, and really the two actually align, you know, well in terms of what I learn that complements the two sides of my work. And it's really important to me that I can see the victims and I can see their families and then I can think about that prevention and what it means for their families as well, not just their partners and children, but their parents, their friends, their community for those that are causing the harm. 
And I'm also interested in um, your personal view on this, but then also as a chief executive and having staff, the self-care element, because that must be really important. You know, this work is grim at times. Yes, it can be uplifting, of course, because otherwise none of us would do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but how do you sort of look after yourself and how do you support your staff to sort of keep keep their chins up, as it were? Yeah, I think it, it can be brutal, you know, and I think it's it's the work, isn't it? And it, the, the level of trauma that you're seeing is really difficult. Um, we have a really good programme within HIMSA around clinical supervision. Um, so we have external and internal clinical supervision for all of our team. And I mean everyone, you know, everyone within the organisation. And we also talk a lot, you know, we are an organisation that are very based very much on mindfulness. We really try to practice what we preach and try to look after each other. I think, you know, unlike some big organisations, we can't fund wellbeing days and all of those kinds of things. You do, you know, that becomes more difficult when you're small. So I think sometimes it's just about allowing people time when they need time and creating that open environment and people know that they they can do that. And that's sometimes all you can do within small organisations to to support individuals. But I think it's it's actually about the culture within the organisation of coming from that space of mindfulness and grounding ourselves and taking the time, recognising it in each other um, and being really open about how we are. You know, a, a couple of members of my team had really tricky summers in their personal lives. And so we were able to give them some space over the summer, which was helped by the fact we do do a summer shutdown for our service where, you know, everyone gets that space. So it's really, yeah, really looking after each other. And I think in the sector, that's really important, really looking after each other and engaging those bits of self-care that help. You know, I'm a big one for taking a dog walk in the middle of the day if I'm feeling overwhelmed, be it with a fundraising bid or a bit of finance or even just <laughs> yeah. working through the fundraising, watching a session. The yeah. fundraising, fundraising bids will always get you. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, just, just saying actually that freedom, and I think we all have that freedom to take that time, not justify it to anyone. I'm going to be away from my desk for an hour. Exactly. I think also um, when I was younger and started working in prison, someone said to me, and this is something that obviously that costs nothing and some people will be like, yeah, that's a good idea and other people will think you're nuts, but that's fine. Um, Someone said to me, before you go into that prison, just take a moment, realise you're going into a place that is actually quite traumatic. You'll be just taking in people's traumatic stories all day long and you'll be hearing things and seeing things, but you can put this like imaginary cloak on you can choose what colour it is. And it's like your protective cloak. <laughs> and I did think, I was like, oh, this sounds a bit mad, but you know, I'm willing to go with it. And um, so I would do that before I went into the gates of this women's prison, I'd sort of put on my, and it was just, a, as you say, it's sort of mindfulness in a sense. It's just like something you can do. And when I'd come out in the evening feeling really sort of, you know, pretty ground down, I'd take it off. Yeah. Imagine, you know, just in my in my own mind, take it off, get in my car. And by the time I got home, I'd sort of forgotten about it because I'd done that sort of little ritual. And now that, you know, I sort of often come home, well, I always come home to three children um, mm-hmm. in my home and being able to let the day go and sort of just try and chuck it off you in a way. And whether that's changing your clothes, whether it's having a shower immediately, you know, they're just little things that actually sometimes can really help yeah it's really I think it's really important you know I can get into quite a um a pattern where I use my dog walking time to listen to podcasts to catch up on things things I need to you know things in the sector or things happening and I get to the point where I stop 
and I think, no, I'm going to listen to a desert island disc. You know, I'm, yeah, exactly. I know I'm, I've I'm, just done a whole walk and not even looked <laughs> at a tree because I'm looking at Twitter. And <laughs> yeah, see, so just really actually being quite um, quite disciplined, which I think is hard when you when you're someone who enjoys the work. You know, I work in this area because it's I like that it's difficult and challenging, and you know, I want to do that difficult and challenging work. But it, you can't do it all the time without giving your, yourself space. Um, and I think we're seeing a lot of burnout, you know, in individuals at, at all levels, you know, within the sector, just because I think the pressures of not, you know, not being able to meet need is a horrible thing. For me, operating a waiting list um, is something that really keeps me up at night because I've got people self-referring, recognising their behaviour, asking for support, wanting to make a change, and I have to put them on a list. And I find that really difficult because what if we miss, miss that moment? Exactly. What if that's the only moment? And, you know, you, you have to find a way also to live with that and, and just work to, to bring down that list and to bring more money in or to think about what else we can do in the meantime. And I think at times you have to be very kind to yourself and to, you know, to all of your team and say we we can only do what we can do right now and we can totally. keep working around but this is what we can do now yeah let's focus so on this, the successes this is a good point to ask you if uh money was no option and you had a magic wand to create your sort of gold standard perpetrator focused organization could you give me, I haven't given you any heads up about this question, so <laughs> feel free to take a moment. But what would that sort of look like? And would you maybe have two chief executives in the sense that when you say it is quite stressful and people need mm. to be able to have proper time off when they need it? And so what would yeah. that look like? I think, I mean, for me, I'd, I'd eradicate the waiting list would be, you know, one of my first priorities. Let's get a second group running so that we've got two groups running and we were able to support more people at once. And and we can and not have a waiting list. Um, I think you know that's aspirational for lots of us, but I think that would um, that would be a huge win in terms of just just you know actually supporting the women and children that that, that we're ultimately there to serve, and and it also supports other organisations in in Plymouth that are really struggling, you know, totally. supporting women and children. But I suppose you'd um, need a lot more staff, and you'd need more property. No, I think our space is fine um, because groups are in the evening, so we could run in another evening. And yes, it would definitely be a case of being able to secure more hours from our staff. You know, all of my team are part time, aside from one, uh, which is the high risk, high harm project. All of my team are part time. So it would be, you know, brilliant to give people more hours where they wanted them. And to there are other people that are around and about that we could bring in and, um, you know, and support and mentor to our program and to our model, um, I'd like this follow-up, um, this follow-up group that I spoke about for individuals who've completed the program, and we think that would be really important to prevent people from slipping into old behaviour. So, if we're really talking about long-term meaningful change, I think that follow-on group would be helpful. Um, the women that we support in our partner service talk to us a lot about um, the fact that they would like a, a, a group of their peers. So, all of that work is one-to-one. Um, and I think, again, there would be a real space for them to come together again, maybe once a month, but with other women. The women that we have within our integrated partner service are often women that wouldn't meet thresholds for other domestic abuse services because they're not at risk enough 
or they don't meet other thresholds for mental health support, for example. So I think giving them an opportunity to come together in a in a space would be really powerful. And I think one of the real um, glaring gaps that we have at the moment that I sort of spoke to at the beginning is around those, those women that are perpetrating domestic abuse. Yeah, I'm really interested in that. What do you yeah. think that has stemmed from? Because I you're you're saying it in a way that it's like it's much more than usual or we've always seen women come to us asking if we can support that but it feels like we more women are contacting us um not just from the local area but nationally looking desperately for support and i think you know i do find it difficult that women again are being disproportionately impacted because we can't offer them a, a group um you know that that group um, intervention that we know works so we are offering one-to-one support where we can where we've got a bit of capacity but we can never put them through our ahimsa model that we know works because we can only work with them one-to-one which which can be effective but there's something missing from that that group model so for me I think we um, we have the need within the city of Plymouth to even be able to hold a group um, you know we're only talking eight women um, obviously, lots more need to come in to get to that eight. But, you know, we're talking about eight women in a group to sort of pilot how that might work with our model. We feel confident that that model, the model works and will hold. Um, we are, as I said, doing some work within our high risk, high harm project with women. So we do have two women within that that programme who are um, at high risk of, you know, seriously harming um, their partners or ex-partners and we're having real success in that high risk high harm program but again you know two women so um, I'd really love to have something for medium standard risk women where they can engage in a group intervention um, but again that's you know it needs to be a minimum of a year probably 18 months you know with mobilization and to get the right team in and, and we, I think we could see some really great outcomes, but it does feel like a gap as ever. It feels like women are being disproportionately impacted yeah. with a lack of service provision. And it also feels like that's why the local element is really important, because actually, if you're going to have women or men for a year or sort of however long, they need to be kind of close, don't they? Because otherwise, yeah. they're going to be spending a lot of money on travel. Yeah, and it's you one can't of really do this stuff effectively yeah. on teams like we are now, can you? Yeah. It's not really appropriate. Yeah. The, the group work is a lot more difficult on teams, I don't think. I think one of my concerns is always what's going on behind the camera and it, when you're looking at risk and, and that pot- potentially escalating risk you can see better in a room. Um, so I think that's important. Um, it's not to say I, that, that it might not work online, but again, it's, you know, having that, that opportunity to test and learn. And a lot of this work, you know, if we were looking at sort of supporting women who are perpetrating abuse, there would be an element of test and learn. But I think that's really important. If we don't start, we don't know. So, yeah, it it does feel like a real, a real gap at the moment. Um, And one I'd really love to be able to fill um, because women are coming and saying, I need help. I need to change my behaviour. I am behaving in this way. Um, and again, to not be able to support their need 
is difficult. Really difficult. Yeah. Really difficult. Well, listen, all power to your elbow. And I always say, you know, the angels aren't the people dancing around on the fluffy clouds having a nice time. They're sort of down here on earth actually doing the work that you're doing. So if anyone's interested to uh, be in touch with you or learn more about Ahimsa, we'll make sure that those details are um, in the, the footnotes. But thank you so much. I'm so interested in your work and um, and I look forward to being in touch as, as we go forward with my work, your work. Um, yeah, I'm so grateful to have the, the opportunity, yeah, you know, to, to connect with people and to, I suppose, support others to understand what working with perpe- perpetrators of abuse is and means in reality. Um, so, yeah, really grateful for the opportunity. Links relevant to this episode can be found in the pod notes below. If you enjoyed listening, we would love it if you would subscribe. Also rate, review and best of all, share this episode. Justice is produced for one small thing by the London Podcast Company. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com.